do anything better, it's probably looking at how things are going in six months, mm. 12 months, two years down the track and actually asking ourselves, is this actually living up to expectations? Of course, often it's not. And then what happens next? What happens when things aren't living up to expectations? How do you actually change course? My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Founded in 1969, Macquarie is Australia's largest homegrown investment bank with around 14,000 staff in 28 countries. It manages half a trillion dollars in assets and does everything from trading commodities to owning airports. Unusually for an Australian firm, it generates two-thirds of its revenue from overseas. My guest today runs Macquarie Group. Nicholas Moore studied commerce and law at the University of New South Wales, graduating in 1981 then practised as a chartered accountant at Pete Marwick, now part of KPMG. Nicholas joined Macquarie in 1986, working on the asset and infrastructure side of the business, and became Managing Director and Chief Executive in 2008. He's the Chairman of the Sydney Opera House Trust, Screen Australia and the University of New South Wales Business Schools Advisory Council. Aged in his late 50s, Nicholas was recently rated the seventh most powerful person in Australian business and is the best-paid CEO of an Australian-listed company. Yet he takes a low public profile and tends to avoid publicity. It's taken a year to pin him down for this podcast. I've wanted to chat with Nicholas since I did a boardroom lunch with him and his team a few years ago. I do a lot of boardroom lunches, but chatting with Nicholas and his team was one of the most enjoyable. The style was a lot like an economic seminar, with staff comfortable and challenging Nicholas. It was thoughtful, pacey and funny, and left me curious as to how he generated such a culture. Nicholas, welcome to the Good Life podcast. Thank you, Andrew. So, tell me about your family. What sort of a childhood did you have? Well, I guess probably a fairly typical uh, family background in the 60s in, uh, in Australia, in, in Sydney primarily. So we grew up, there were five kids. Um, mum and dad, mum stayed home, dad went off to work. Uh, it was, it, we went to uh, uh, the local Catholic schools. Uh, so it was a very straight up and down sort of uh, background. Fortunately, my parents um, um, were very um, focused on their, their, their broader life, focused on their kids as well, of course, and they were great examples for, you know, for all of us, I think. What sort of work did your dad do? He was a company man who worked all his life in a business that supplied the printing and the packaging industries here in Australia. Uh, he started in a junior position in Melbourne, uh, then we moved as a family to Brisbane, then to Sydney, and then back to Melbourne where he ended up being uh, the CEO of the company. 
And did he... Was there much pressure to study from home? Was it quite a bookish household? Well, neither of my parents had been to university, but, yes, they both read books. My mother, in particular, was um, uh, very focused on, on reading and we all formed the habit young and we in, enjoyed reading and we certainly very active, as you can guess, around the, uh, the dining room table at night would have, you know, very active uh, debates about the matters of the day, whatever they were, and, uh, you know, very engaged. Everybody in the family was... Uh, uh, very happy to have an opinion and, uh, you know, we had discussions. Was there some expectation you'd go to university? Yeah, I think so, absolutely. You know, by the time um, we were uh, finishing school, I think it had become uh, almost the norm that you'd go to university. So mm. all my uh, siblings and I all went to university. And what attracted you to studying commerce law? Well, as always, I always liked the idea of business. Business fascinated me in terms of the the potential in terms of what business produced and what it delivered and I always wanted to be part of that and it was always difficult as a, as a, as a child um, at school to think well how do I how do I do business and it mm. became apparent that there was this path that you you learned you know accountancy at university you did law and that allowed you then to go down bi- different paths subsequently so that was the direction I thought was always a good way to be moving into into business. So you began work as a chartered accountant and then how did you find your, your early days in the workforce? It was very good actually. I enjoyed working a lot. You know, I'd been to uh, university and that was, and that was fun but, but work was, I found, really engaging and very stimulating. So we worked uh, in, on a whole range of different matters. I was fortunate to work in a section focused on financing very early on. So we looked at a whole range of different financing for you know, the aircraft and for power stations and for tourist villages. And it was very stimulating in terms of seeing how uh, projects came together. And so that was uh, uh, in a very fortunate position that I was in. And from that I was able naturally to go to uh, Macquarie, as it were, uh, at a certain point. So for someone who doesn't naturally think from this standpoint, what's, what's exciting about the financing side? I guess many people would think that the, the doing of the deal is, is more exciting than, than the raising of the money for it. What, what, what makes that exciting for you? Well, I think it's all part of the, uh, it, it, it's all part of the, the, the package. And, I, and one of the interesting things about the financing side is you have to think through all the different elements, all the different risk elements of, mm. a, of a project. Uh, you know, obviously, will the demand be there? You know, many there's many good projects where the demand hasn't been there for whatever the product that, that may be. What happens if the demand isn't there? What happens if the demand is less than you expect? All the different possible outcomes. On the other side, of course, it's um, how much will the project cost? Uh, what happens if it if there are overruns? What happens when things go wrong? So you have to think about it from a very broad risk viewpoint in terms of all uh, the different uh, um, outcomes that are possible, all the things that can go wrong. In particular, obviously, we have a very big focus on what the worst case outcome can be in all these different Mm. situations, and you're always trying to apply that lens to it. So it's very intellectually challenging. It's very... Um, it's, it's, you know, it, these are usually competitive situations as well where there's a number of teams will be working trying to finance a project of a sort and so there's a lot of who's going to come up with the, uh, the best ideas and the best evaluation in terms of how do you think about these different assets. You've spoken before about risk being at the, at the heart of, of what Macquarie does. Yeah. Uh, do you... Uh, how do you think more systematically about risk? I mean, all of us kind of have worries in our life and think about things that could go wrong. What is it that uh, you think you do in in applying 
more rigour to, to think about risk? Well, we've really institutionalised the way we look at risk at Macquarie. To start off with, we always try to work out what the worst case outcome will be. And we make sure that that outcome is something that the business can afford and Macquarie overall, of course, can afford it. Secondly, we ask ourselves the question, how much money will the risk actually return to us? And is the risk, therefore, worth taking? Now, this is a much more complex uh, question and it means that for every business, uh, every activity, every transaction, there will be a different risk-reward equation. Finally, when we look at it, we don't look at this as a single pinpoint outcome. We look at a whole possible range of outcomes that, that might come through. And, and, and when we do look at it on all these three issues, we, look, we make sure we have the biggest possible team engaged in actually working out what the possible outcomes can be, what the possible returns can be, and we look at all the, the, all the possible outcomes and we really thoroughly work it through with experts in the individual areas. So experts, if we're looking at an airport transactions, exports in, in airports, exports in, in, in power stations, if it's to do with power stations, experts in real estate, if it's to do with uh, real estate. So lots of experts, a, 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 a big team, and really try to thoroughly evaluate and question ourselves in terms of why we think our conclusions will be right when we're dealing with the future, which, of course, is inherently impossible to forecast. And do you do that through particular roles? Uh, you know, there's the old Edward de Bono idea that you should have someone in the room wearing the black hat and someone wearing the purple hat. And uh, do, you, do you have individuals who are assigned to, to think about the worst case and the best case scenarios? Or do you try and encourage everyone to sort of think across the whole risk spectrum? Yeah, yeah certainly. Well, the way we, we, the way we look at it is people, we expect people to come up with ideas or projects or ideas or businesses and we have this real focus on, you know, opportunity being the word that we use, of course, and everybody's sort of uh, actually expected to do that. And then when they do come up with an idea or an opportunity, obviously there isn't... Within the business, there's a focus on actually people saying, well, what can we do with that? Is it really a good idea? And they try to have as open a conversation as they can where they really try to second-guess each other in terms of, is this a good idea? And often in, in the course of that process, you'll end up with a different idea will come out. So you mm. start off with one thing, you have a very challenging discussion, and often different ideas come from it. So then you have that, that, that idea, is that's the business. As an overlay on the business, we have our own internal risk management group and an approval structure. So even the business wants to do something, then they say, OK, we would like to do this transaction, this business, this whatever it is. It then comes forward and then we independently have a separate look at it mm. where we're effectively trying to... Not, we're, we're, we're actually a- analysing it with a view of actually determining whether we think the risk reward is right. So the business has decided it, then we have another look at it. And then, of course, assuming it all goes ahead and assuming it gets the necessary approvals, what we think is really important is actually to review it on an ongoing basis. And this is where I think we probably do things better. If we do anything better, it's probably not so much... Well, hopefully it's very much in terms of the original engagement, but but really looking at how things are going in six months, Mm. 12 months two years down the track and actually asking ourselves, is this actually living up to expectations? Of course, often it's not. And then what happens next? What happens when things aren't living up to expectations? How do you actually change course? What what other elements? What didn't you expect? So that evolutionary element of actually trying to do new things but then actually having that accountability that comes mm. back and looks mm. at it again and say, well, is this working the way we, we, we want? And this is both at the business level and, and more centrally. And we expect everyone to be changing 
and developing those business ideas on an ongoing basis. So very much on an evolutionary view, viewpoint. And it's particularly that second bit of really saying, well, this transaction or this business may be going well, but actually is it really what we want? And actually giving us the, the opportunity to actually stop it change it, reposition it, and actually move it into something different. Yes. And that really, we think, is the, you know, at least as important as the first part of actually going down and seeing new opportunities, this idea of coming back from an accountability viewpoint and actually saying, well, you know, how are we going with this? Is it working? What else should we be doing? Should we be growing it? Should we be shrinking it? Should we be moving it left or right? Mm. So you're now in your 31st year at uh, Macquarie and ninth year in CEO, and uh, presumably feel you've got your, your legs very comfortably under the table, but it wasn't always that way. I mean, when you On the day you were announced as Alan Moss's successor in February 2008, the share price fell nearly a tenth. Uh, you took over in uh, May of 2008, just, as, uh, uh, just before Lehman Brothers hit the, hit the wall. How did you deal with the sort of intense pressure cooker environment into which you became uh, the head of Macquarie in 2008? Yep. Of course, the key to dealing with most crises is preparation. And the way we prepare ourselves at Macquarie, we always assume the worst-case outcome will happen tomorrow. So in terms of sizing our positions from a risk viewpoint, uh, our liquidity in particular, we always assume that the worst case will happen from a market viewpoint, that liquidity will dry up, and that we'll have to be carrying on business in an entirely altered environment. So that's how we run our business on a day-to-day basis. So when the crisis happened, actually we saw it obviously for 12 months leading into it, things looked like uh, they were very unstable. We saw liquidity falling across the globe. We saw incredible volatility, record volatility in the markets. So not only were we prepared from a long-term viewpoint, from a short-term viewpoint, we increasingly became uh, able to deal with the, uh, with the problems that we saw in the world. So we were very prepared for it, uh, notwithstanding the fact we were prepared for it. It obviously was an uncomfortable period in the financial markets, looking at the, looking at the volatility we did, looking at the falling liquidity, and the liquidity fell in all the markets day by day. It just ground down and ground down further and further. So we continued to uh, make sure that we could continue to operate uh, most effectively. Uh, in terms of effective operation, of course, it means not just coping with the book as it was, but actually imagining what the world was we were going into. And I think one of the things that we did very well at Macquarie, as we, as we hope to do, is actually see the opportunities that were coming out and the risks that were coming out of the new world that we're going into. So it meant that we were able to objectively look at some of the businesses we were doing and say, well, actually, these businesses probably won't have a future in the new world that we're going into. So businesses such as margin lending, we were able to sell those businesses as we went through. Our mortgages businesses operating outside Australia were able to sell those businesses as we moved forward. But against that, new opportunities opened in terms of having the having a, having a market positions open and having the ability to see opportunities and actually step up and grow the businesses, particularly in this annuity area that we've become famous for 
before in, in recent times. So by annuity businesses, these are businesses that actually provide a regular annuity style of income. And I think we were notable and have been noted that we're able to respond to the market conditions and grow those businesses. So, for example, we're able to grow our asset management business in the United States with the acquisition of, of Delaware. We're able to grow our, our motor vehicle leasing businesses here in Australia. We're able to grow our aircraft leasing businesses globally. Uh, we're able to grow our, our, our commodities business, our energy businesses as well. So these are all opportunities that, that, that became more profitable and therefore were able to respond to as the world uh, continued to evolve uh, past, the, uh, past the crisis. Your family can't have seen much of you for uh, 2008, I imagine. It was it was a busy time, absolutely. Uh, what, how did you how do you handle the stress? Uh, do you have do you meditate? Do you have particular techni- techniques for making sure that you stay focused and don't let the to do list overwhelm you? Yes, well, I uh, I exercise. I mean, I like uh, exercising. So when I wake up in the morning, I'll you know go for a run. And as you know, when you go for a run in the morning, your your mind you know goes through the day. Um, and I find when you you know you get to work, you you know your your mind is clear and you can actually focus on you know what the opportunities are, what the opportunities are. So I think that's important. Um, um, yeah, so I think that's that's important, and you know I, I'm sort of able, you know, relatively effectively when I go home, I can I can disconnect in terms of the worries of the world and mm. you know, turn my focus to you know what's happening in the what's happening in the home and more broadly. How do you make sure you're present for your kids? I mean, one of the things I find hardest with an endlessly overflowing inbox is just to put the devices away and and be on the carpet playing playing with my playing with my kids how do you how do you manage to to switch off when you must know in your head that there are urgent things that your management team needs a response on well um i mean i think it's a little bit different now i mean my you know my eldest my youngest i should say is 19 so my kids have you know moved through the age of uh, of 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 dependency largely um, so it's it's obviously a lot easier now. Uh, when they were younger, uh, there was you know very substantial demands, obviously from a work viewpoint, mm. not just in terms of you know what happened in two thousand and eight, but it's a it's a demanding business. You know we have clients who have high expectations in terms of what we need to provide, and we have high expectations in terms of our people. So I, I think um, you know, first and foremost, I'm you know, very fortunate in my uh, in my wife. You know, obviously we're we're a team. Um, she, um, she, her, her focus has been very much on the family uh, from the time our first child was born. So that was, you know, she was working, and then she was very focused to uh, uh, to our children, and that, you know, that was, you know, fantastic. You know, it, 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 frankly, both of us working at the same pace that I would with work would have been a, a huge cost to the family. And fortunately, she was able to focus her attention uh, on the family. So that was, you know, the most important thing I think in terms of me personally, in terms of being able to offer it. Travel, I think, was probably more the um, more the, the the bigger worry rather than mm. the you know what happens during the the, the the day job. So, as you mentioned in your introduction, two thirds of our business is outside Australia, so that does require and has always required a substantial amount of travel. Uh, in which case, uh, you know, obviously you, you're away. For, you know, while I'm away for you know weeks uh, weeks at a time on occasion. So that's the you know that's the challenging element, I think. 
Mm. Do you uh, have creative ways of staying staying in touch with your uh, with your kids? Are you just sort of constantly constantly text, texting them to update? Do you have a regular kind of call, call in with them now they're uh, teenagers and in their early twenties? Well, we see them we we see them regularly. So we mm. see them at at home. You know, they'll they'll come by. Um, we've still got two at home, so. You know, we see them on a on a regular basis, so there's no uh, no distance. Mm. Um, you know, they do. Uh, you know, obviously with you know, but with uh, FaceTime and texting and all the rest. You know, if, if we are travelling, there's you know constant communication. Do you have travel tips? You're uh, you're uh, an extremely experienced business business traveller. Uh, do you have ways of uh, uh, re when you uh, when you land in a new city? Uh, well, I, I like to always get out and walk. I think one of the most important things is to be you know, walking around rather than, you know, one of the worst things I think you can do is get into a car and get driven around. That's like just a disaster. I think when you when you walk, it allows your body to adjust with, uh, with the daylight or whatever the jurisdiction is. It allows you to, you know, feel the, feel the town that you're in. Um, so I think walking is most important, or running. You know, I love to, you know, different places around the world. There's places I'll go for a run. So in London, I love running down the South Bank. So running down, we usually stay near the city, obviously, and then run down the South Bank, and it's mm. incredible. You know, that's an amazing um, uh, uh, riverscape that you see when you see all the, the history of London laid out before you. It's, it's, it's quite incredible. And similarly in New York, obviously, running around Central Park is a wonderful experience. In Tokyo, you know, running around the... Uh, uh, running around the palace. I mean, all these, you know, I, I think they're wonderful places in all these cities. Then you can go and acclimatise to mm. the underlying city and at the same time have a wonderful experience. And you're an ocean swimmer too. Do you ever uh, take the togs and dive uh, dive into uh, new ocean swims while you're overseas? No, not really. That's really a, a Sydney, I think, uh, activity. And it's, it's a wonderful activity in Sydney. And it's, you know, it really is remarkable when you do it. Um, I... It's swimming outside Australia is a bit challenging. In, in the UK, they do have pools. They're, you know, sort of funny 33-yard uh, <laughs> pools, so they're a bit, a bit unusual, and they tend not to have lanes the way we have lanes. So I tend not to swim outside uh, outside Australia. What's your favourite Australian swim? Uh, well, I did Palm to uh, Whale Beach is the one that I like. They call it the Big Swim, which is uh, we sponsor it, Macquarie sponsor it. So it's about 2.8 kilometres uh, they claim, and it's a, always a, a good swim. It's a challenging swim. So you go around a headland. So you, mm. you come out along the rocks and around the headland, and then you swim into the uh, into the beach. And when you swim in, you actually feel like you've you've done something. So it's always a, uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Have you, do you, are you a swimmer? I'm not. No, no. Pure pure running. Uh, I did a little bit of swimming when I was a triathlete, triathlete as a kid, but uh, not since then. Right. Uh, so uh, I, I'm curious in terms of how you manage these incredibly driven personalities in, uh, in in bankers. I mean, bankers are are famously focused on on winning, but it's also important for you from from a risk management perspective as well as obviously an ethics uh, perspective to instill a sense of uh, of integrity in the bankers you're managing how do you balance that getting uh, getting that sense of integrity without losing the sense of drive well integrity is a is a great word and as you know it's one of the uh, the values at macquarie and when we talk about integrity with our people we we obviously focus on integrity being about honesty and about honest dealings in terms of how we deal uh, with our clients, how we deal with our customers, how we deal with each other, how, how we deal with our shareholders, how we deal with our community. So honesty, obviously, is the, is, is the cornerstone of, of integrity. But even more than that, of course, integrity is making sure that what we do with all our, all our customers, all our relationships and our community 
actually does have a positive impact in terms of the contribution we're making. And I think increasingly businesses around the world are focusing on making sure they're communicating the, the, the benefits that they're actually delivering to all the people that they're engaged in, to the communities, to their customers, to their staff, uh, to the governments and the jurisdictions they work in. And I think that there's this bigger issue of, of, of integrity really is important to, uh, to make sure that we're communicating that effectively uh, inside the organisation and, and therefore uh, externally as well. I guess the only other point to make is you talk about uh, Macquarie from the point of view of investment bankers, and obviously we do have a, a strong investment banking team here in Australia and globally, but across Macquarie, of course, we've got 14,000 people engaged in a whole range of other activities, you know, managing, uh, managing airports or managing water treatment facilities, uh, developing wind projects, uh, leasing motor vehicles, uh, mortgage, uh, mortgage financing, helping uh, real estate agents in terms of their banking businesses. So I think when you think about integrity at Macquarie and the, and the general view of Macquarie, it's really important to have that broad view of the team and where they're engaged in so many different areas uh, of the community. And as you say, Macquarie's the, the diversity of what Macquarie does is, is just extraordinary. Uh, infrastructure in Europe, financing for gold mines, leasing planes, renewable energy, uh, regional radio stations. You can't possibly have your head in the details of each of those transactions. So how do you as a manager make sure that you're enough across the, the risks involved yeah. in, in each, each of those deals? Yeah, quite right. Well, as you say, it's very much a bottom-up driven organisation that we have experts people with real expertise across so many different areas and they're, and they're deeply embedded in the detail and the, the good ideas come from the people. They don't come from, you know, at the top centrally down. It comes very much from people engaged in the markets with the knowledge and the expertise. So our, our role is to make sure that, that, that we are asking the, the hard questions in terms of in terms of what's happening. They're holding people accountable. They've got their businesses and they've got their dreams and we've got to obviously look on, a, on an ongoing basis and most importantly, they look at it themselves. You know, mm, Even mm. before we come in with the overlay, the culture of the business is people do look at their own businesses all the time. Most of the suggestions for change actually come from within the business. People saying, we think we, we shouldn't do this anymore, we should exit this, we should buy this or do something. So they, 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 have, the, uh, they have the ideas and the initiative. But what we, what we come along is make sure that looking externally from the business with that benefit of objectivity that they won't have and actually really ask ourselves the question, is this actually worth it? So we're coming from, as you say, a very diverse um, group of businesses with a whole group of experts, but all of that has to be able to be understood Centrally, We have to understand what's going on. We have to be able to come back to that basic risk-reward equation with every one of those businesses. So we can't say to you or say to anybody else, this is the risk this business is running and be happy with it, then something's gone very wrong. Mm. So you have the experts, but yes, what, what are the risks? What are the returns they're taking? Let's make sure we're comfortable with them. And if we're not sure, and we, you know, we're very clear on this, if we're not sure, we just don't do it. Like if we're doing something and we don't quite understand what's going on, that's fine. We're just not going to do it anymore. If there's a regulatory risk out there that we can't get our mind around, well, we're just not going to do it. And we make that very, very any operational risk, any credit risk, if we can't understand it from a central viewpoint, a sort of a commonsensical viewpoint, then we don't do it. So that's, you know, that really simple, unless we understand it, we don't do it. 
And that's, I guess, key to avoiding the Enron challenge, right, where you're, you're taking on all kinds of different things without central management really knowing what's going on. Yeah, well, I think we, we're, we're very confident we know what's, what's going on. As mm. I said, if we don't understand it, we just don't do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, uh, what skills are you try, do, do, you, do you think someone needs to do a job like yours? And, and what skills are you still trying to, uh, to acquire? Well, um, the skills. Of, uh, I think you need to be. Um, I think you need to be very, very humble in terms of doing what we're doing. Just knowing the the uncertainty of the world that we're living in, and 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 very open in terms of what the risks may be. So I think that's the most important thing. Actually, coming through, knowing that there's a there's a whole range of potential outcomes out there. You'll never know them all. So you have to be uh, very open in terms of um, what your limitations are. You have to be very open as well when things don't go the way that you expect or other people mm. expect. You have to be very open to, to make changes and not get locked into a certain positions and, uh, and actually make sure you can change the, the business. I think as well as that, um, we have to be very open to uh, the people who work for us. You know, That's the, the, the assets of the business. We have obviously shareholders' funds, but we also have the, the people. And if you look at... The group at the moment, I think we're broadly trading a, a bit over, a, a bit over, a bit less than two times book. So it means the people have a huge amount of value uh, to the organisation. So you need to create an organisation where people actually can be comfortable and can actually uh, not become are very keen and very willing to, to to put in the effort and the time and to dedicate their future and their career to the uh, the outcome of the team that you're creating. So I think that's you know that that element of the uh, of of managing people and, and 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 using your word again that integrity in terms of how we work as a team I think is absolutely uh, absolutely critical in terms of. How to do the job better? Well, if if I was you know better at all of the above, obviously I'd be uh, <laughs> I'd be a much better person. So um, um, you know we're it's working, we're all in works in progress, aren't we? Are there particular things that you're you're working on though? Are there particular you acquiring languages? The particular thing that you're you're re- reading reading up on at the at the moment? Is there uh, some aspect of what you do that you've, you're sort of consciously working on at the moment? Uh, not particularly. I mean, I, I you know, have got broad interest in terms of things that I'm, I'm reading. I'm always fascinated, of course, with uh, humanity, of course, and, uh, and with decision-making and with all the foibles and biases that we all have and actually thinking how we can, you know, effectively make better decisions. You know, what is it that we can do as, a, as an organisation that we end up making better decisions and, and recognising um, uh, recognizing what the opportunities are and... And and, and and what the what the shortcomings in terms of our approach. So um, there's always initiatives in terms of, of of doing that. One of the little ones we're doing at the moment, for example, is um, uh, looking at the super forecasting. I don't know if you've read that book, but you know, looking at different experts and how different experts provide views and try to come up with what different outcomes may may be. Um, uh, we're we're looking at how we actually uh, work. Uh, together as a, as a management team in terms of our skills. So we're bringing in often uh, new um, uh, courses to be teaching people uh, management skills, which might seem a little bit odd when you're saying we're teaching managers management skills. We as a culture are very focused on, um, on 
producer managers, I think was the expression people have used before. So people who have a very good technical expertise and ability to do things. And so we expect all our managers to be able to go out there and actually deal with clients or deal with businesses or deal with systems, deal with problems and actually solve them. It's through their, their technical competence that they qualify as a manager. And so then they then become a bigger manager and end up with managing more areas as a result of their success and being able to manage people while at the same time having their technical skill uh, that they actually brought to it. So we're looking at adding on layers of management skills, uh, external management skills in terms of developing people uh, so they can hopefully uh, uh, you know, develop these skills uh, more effectively in a more rounded way than they might otherwise. So there's lots of things that we're doing on a, yes. from a human capital viewpoint, you know, sort of a people development viewpoint uh, as, as a focus. And uh, how do you generate a culture in which people feel comfortable disagreeing, disagreeing with you? Well, we, um, well, obviously it's how you respond primarily to when people disagree. If you say to when someone disagrees, well, that's very interesting, let's talk about it and let's, you know, develop it, that's one response rather than, you know, closing someone down. So, so I think... In our teams, we we emphasise the importance of actually a good team leader, and that's what we call our managers, team leaders. A good team leader is someone who can actually encourage uh, the team to come up with new ideas, to come mm. actually to, if there's a problem, to actually highlight what the problem is, to, to speak up, you know, for example. Uh, when when people turn their computers on in the morning, they get two messages. Uh, one is, everything's on the record, and secondly, speak up. And basically we're saying to, you know, making it very clear in the organisation from the top to the bottom that, that, that we expect people to, to contribute. So if we have a, a, a meeting where there's six people in it, we, we say all the time we want all six people to actually speak. We don't want people to go away from the meeting thinking, well, I should have said this or I should have said that. And, we, and that's part of our conversation with our people all the time in terms of what it means to come to a meeting. It's, it's come to a meeting and actually make a contribution. Um, so that's very much part of the... Uh, and, of course, you know, coming back to the first point, it's, it's how we conduct the meetings that matters the most, you know, whether we actually... When someone actually comes up with an idea or comes up with a criticism of how we treat it and how actually we, you know, re- we respect it but actually develop it and, you know, see where that takes us. And I think we're, I think we're pretty good at that. Do you have strategies for avoiding drowning an email? Um, y- yes, but probably not all that effective ones. I mean, I think email is just one form of communication and I think, you know, we all have in our mind a hierarchy of communications where the best communication is person to person. So second best is person, you know, over the telephone. Uh, I don't know where email comes in, sort of third or fourth in terms of where it, where, where, where it sits. And I think, again, it's, it's talking about communications and making sure people realise that by sending a two-line email that mightn't actually be communicating. You know, most, you know, many, many emails, as you know, there's people misunderstand what's said because people don't put the thought in, ter- in terms of what's being sent or actually put in the thought in terms of the response. So we encourage people as much as possible to be, you know, talking to each other face-to-face, to be picking the phone. Uh, one of the things that we've done recently, of course, is uh, we've got uh, things effectively like, you know, FaceTime and things like that where people can actually see each other. So on our telephones now, you can actually see the person, you know, actually, mm. which it just helps communication. The more you see somebody, the more you're talking to them, it's so much more effective 
uh, than email. So, yes, we, do, we all do email. We do a lot of email, but we say if there's anything important, let's make sure we have a meeting. Let's make sure we actually see each other and let's make sure we communicate it. The misunderstandings, as you know, that take place with email or just issues just don't get addressed. You know, just, they just get parked somewhere, uh, somewhere either. Yeah, that's interesting. And how do you how are you managing generational change within Macquarie? Because there's you still have quite a few people in the organisation who joined as as you did in the in the nineteen eighties. Yep. Um, you have a uh, cohort of, uh, of of young, uh, smart, energetic young things coming yep. in coming in every year. How do you balance that? Yeah, well, uh, good question. So, first point is we um, uh, we say that succession is everybody's business. And we actually really, uh, from the first meeting we have with people when we join, uh, we say, look, you're joining for one job, we want you to do another job. You know, we want you to grow and, you know, the, our success is based upon people stepping up to do new things. But you won't get promoted to do a new thing unless you've got somebody who can do your job now. Mm. So you almost have to be, make yourself redundant in every job if you are looking uh, for promotion. So we really stress this idea of succession. Every person we say you need to have your successor in place at all times and you have to be developing that person uh, from, from the beginning. Now, when I look across the group in terms of all our businesses, there is very good succession in place. You know, layers and layers of people who um, have developed within the business actually know the business very, very well and have actually succeeded in terms of the tasks that they have with their manager very focused in terms of giving them more responsibility with the hope, obviously, that the manager themselves will be given more responsibility and, and they'll have that position. So it's, it's literally drummed into people from, uh, from uh, the very first uh, you know, session they have. And where people are seen as, uh, as having uh, succeeded at Macquarie, you're famously well known for having uh, remunerated them well. Um, and indeed, this has come in for no small measure of, uh, of, of public, public criticism. How do you respond to criticisms around your salary? Well, I, I think with in terms of the... Uh, the pay structure at Macquarie, uh, we've got, as I mentioned before, a range of different businesses. Now, with all those different businesses, we're paying according to the market for the different uh, business types. And they're, and they're very varied across Macquarie. Obviously, we've got different pay structures and remuneration in terms of retail businesses versus wholesale business, asset management businesses that are relatively asset light compared with, uh, uh, compared with capital-heavy businesses. So what we, what we do is we look at all the different um, businesses. We look at uh, comparables. Obviously, we're employing people in the marketplace on an ongoing basis. So we have a very good feel in terms of what's market. And, and our people get paid uh, get paid market. Now, if they're in a if you're being paid market in a successful business, obviously it, 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 it can be a good outcome. So that's the key element in terms of how you think about uh, the remuneration. Is it's a it's a broad range of, of businesses, and and with all of them, they're actually being benchmarked to market on a on a constant on a constant basis. And if we are to grow the businesses and develop the businesses, obviously that's essential. Hmm. Well, let me wrap up with just a, a few uh, standard questions they ask each of my uh, my interviewees. What advice would you give to your teenage self? Well, I would um, I'd give the same advice I think I give to most people who join Macquarie, which is uh, be confident. That you should you know most of the people that we see uh, in our organisation are very very capable, very very capable indeed, uh, and they don't really know as ca- how capable they really are. Now, what people need constantly to be reassured is that they are actually very competent, that, that if they put, them in, in, put themselves in position of, of difficulty in terms of difficult work situations, if you take on the hard tasks, 
you will actually you'll surprise yourself. You'll actually be able to succeed in terms of many things in life, particularly if you're working with a good team of people. So my advice to my teenage self, frankly, is the advice I give everyone out there, is that you should feel confident you can take on the hard stuff. And when you take on the hard stuff, you should be working with a team and developing with that team the ability to actually do the, uh, the difficult tasks. Um, and you'll surprise yourself. Did your teenage self lack confidence? I would never have expected to be where I am now. And I think most people in Macquarie, one of the good things... Well, I um, give out 10-year... Um, uh, we have 10-year awards where people have worked with us for 10 years and um, we give them a gift and we make a speech and say thank you for working with us for 10 years. And inevitably they stand up and they say, I'm surprised I'm here. You know, I, I never thought I'd, I'd, I'd be staying 10 years at a place. I've really enjoyed coming to work at Macquarie. It's the people I work with that I found really fulfilling and I've actually done a lot more than I ever thought. I would do. And that sentiment is almost universal. Not, not always. There's some people who don't say that, but it's a very, very common sentiment. And that's certainly a sentiment that I feel that uh, I would never have expected um, to be doing what I'm doing now. Um, and it has very much been a function of the people that I've worked with for you know, the last 31 years here at Macquarie. Uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very positive and very good environment for the people who work here. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? We have always believed in the, in the free flow of, 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 of people, of ideas, and in particular of capital uh, across the world. And our business obviously has been very much driven and very much predicated on that. And for most of my working life, we've seen the barriers to the movement of, of, of people and ideas and capital. Those barriers have come down. And generally speaking, it's been a, a very positive outcome for the world. You know, life expectancy has increased, per capita income has increased, uh, more people have moved out of, out of poverty. It's been, a, it's been a very good story globally. It hasn't always been universally positive. We've seen, for example, with the flow of capital, that when we saw unrestricted short-term capital flow into Asia uh, prior to 98, when the crisis happened in 98, that money left and caused massive social dislocation. We saw the capital flow into the United States, uh, really driving property prices uh, before 2008, and then the consequence take place uh, with the property downturn in the United States. So free flow of capital uh, hasn't always been, uh, hasn't always been uh, the best outcome in an entirely unrestricted way. Similarly, of course, in more recent times, we're seeing the impact not just in terms of the flow of capital, but in terms of the flow of ideas and people. And there has been a pause in terms of looking at people who might not have benefited as much from the free flow of capital, people and ideas, and there's a reappraisal taking place. So I think it's really important for communities to actually recognise that not everyone will be beneficiaries in terms of the free flow of capital, people and ideas, and to make sure that there are mechanisms in place to actually assure that everybody is a beneficiary. I, I look back at that period between the two wars, that kind of 1914 to 1945 period in which the, the world closed down and, and I worry sometimes that we might be, be going into another period of deglobalisation if, if we don't get all those other settings right. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's right. As I said, I think fortunately here in Australia we're, you know, we're, we're better placed than most. Um, we probably had more barriers, I suspect, 
than most before they were dismantled uh, in, the, uh, in the 80s going forward. And, and we've, we've managed it well. It's a remarkable uh, transition in terms of just in recent years, if we think about the mining boom being followed by what's happened in housing and now what's happening in infrastructure, the management of the economy has been remarkable. But we have to, I think, take examples in terms of what's happened outside Australia mm. and actually recognise that there are, there are pitfalls. It's not just a, not just a one-way street. Yes. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Well, when I go for a run, I listen to, uh, I listen to my um, uh, Apple Music. And there's a number of stations I listen to, including uh, classic hip-hop. So... Uh, <laughs> So uh, I didn't pick you for a hip-hop fan. So what is classic hip-hop? Is this like a meld between classical music and hip-hop? Uh, no, it's not much classical music. In it. This is hip-hop going back to uh, Grandmaster Flash uh, back in the early 80s through to the 90s and some, some more modern stuff such as uh, Eminem, of course, who uh, has you know, endless, uh, endless songs. Any hip-hop concert goer as well? No, not, I don't actually go to concerts, but I like listening to it when I go for a run. Fantastic. Okay. When are you most happy? Oh, well, I think I'm most happy... Well, I know I'm most happy when I'm with my family. Is there a uh, particular environment? Do you guys have a standard uh, holiday you, you go, go away to? Or? Yeah, we often go to the, uh, to the beach. The Australian thing, we'll go to the beach in, in January and we'll have uh, our family, we'll get together and we'll you know, share, share happy times together. Uh, and what's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Well, as I mentioned before, I, I like exercising in the mor- morning, which keeps me, I guess, physically happy. To keep, to keep me mentally happy, I think it's, uh, it's the challenges that, that one has of actually working through the challenges and you know, getting to the other side, because there's no shortage, obviously, and, and that's you know, always fulfilling in terms of uh, good outcomes. Are there places you go to to get new ideas? Are there uh, partic- do you have a sort of uh, a set of friends around you who you, you catch catch up work catch up with for uh, for new ideas? Are you a fan of uh, sort of magazines like The Economist, New Yorker, and so on? Are there particular sources you go to for inspiration there? Uh, yeah, well, I, I do like those magaz- magazines, as you say, uh, um, but I find it remarkable uh, when you. Get, you know, as we say, when you get out there, when you go and, and talk to people in business, when you speak to clients, customers, when you go to you know, cocktail parties, when you meet people, it's incredible the amount of information that you get just on an ongoing basis. I, I find you can't go to any meeting, any cocktail party, any dinner or anything without coming back with, with new ideas and, and new thoughts that you hadn't had before. And, and often you, know, you sort of think, oh, do I really need to go out tonight? And you go and you think, wow, that was mm. so so worth it and so it's, it's amazing the, the, uh, the, the stimulation and of course that said you should go to as, as broad a group of those sorts of meetings as you, as you can so recently um, you know, the Centre of Independent Studies went off to a concilium for a weekend lots of good ideas there but similarly going to client meetings lots of good ideas happening um, reading the newspapers I mean I, I, the international you know, press in particular I like reading the, you know, the Financial Times Wall Street Journal uh, the uh, the Economist, uh, lots of these magazines, and there's no shortage of uh, new ideas. And of course, coming back to your point before about uh, books, you know, there's endless, endless, uh, endless new ideas coming through that uh, uh, that uh, entertain on an ongoing basis. And um, finally, Nicholas, Nicholas Moore, what um, person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? 
Well, I think my parents, coming back to your opening comments, I think without doubt uh, I'm the product of my parents, as self-evident truth, but um, they uh, lived a very a very good life. They were very straightforward. Um, they were very, um, you know, clear in terms of the importance of, of work, uh, very clear in, in terms of the importance of, 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 of honesty, in terms of not just in terms of saying the truth, but actually honesty in terms of who you are and, 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 and being very clear. Um, they were, uh, um, of course, with their children, very forgiving always. Um, and I think they always had a, a very clear view of their position in a, in a, in a broader society. And so uh, I think um, I was incredibly fortunate to have the, uh, the parents that I did, the, you know, the family that I did, and uh, you know, very, very clear, um, uh, very clear background. They must have been very proud of you watching your career. I hope so. I hope so. I hope so. Macquarie Group CEO Nicholas Moore, thank you for being on the Good Life podcast today. Okay, thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week. I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.